0: Good morning, everybody, or good afternoon, everybody, whenever it is that you get your podcast fix. My name is Derek Smith, and this is the Truth or Derek show, or the Truth or Derek podcast, whatever you want to call it. Uh, thank you for joining me so much today on episode three. Today, we are talking with the great Cheryl Mac McCollum. Now, if you're not familiar with it, you should be, because... Um, tell you right now. She is an Emmy Award winner for her work on CSI Atlanta. She was a two-time Police Department Employee of the Year. She's an inductee into the National Law Enforcement Hall of Fame. Uh, She's every year at CrimeCon. Uh, She's been on Dr. Raw's America's Most Wanted. Crime Stories with Nancy Grace 2020. Just everywhere, anywhere crime is, she is. She's pretty darn good at it too. So later on, we're going to be talking a little bit with the Queen of True Crime. Cheryl Mac McCollum, again, uh, you're not going to want to miss this one, but speaking of true crime, have you guys guys heard of www.podstars.net? Get ready to take your podcasting career to the next level with www.podstars.net. Podstars is a talented and passionate community that will give you the opportunity to interview top professionals from a variety of industries, where they will share their insights and experiences with your audience. Plus, everyone will have access to the exclusive celebrity catalog featuring some of the best in the business, both new and established. It is also free to join. As a member of Podstars, you can choose from the exciting catalog of celebrities to interview on your podcast, or if interested for an additional monthly fee of only $8.99 a month, you can upgrade to the Community Plan, a completely different and exciting catalog full of some of the best experts and professionals in their fields as well as access to everybody in the whole Podstars universe. It is a great way to invest in your podcast, as you will save time and money by being able to book guests from one platform with an expansive catalog that is constantly being added. to. We added a whole bunch of people last week, too. And my guest today, Cheryl Mac McCollum, the Queen of True Crime, is on there as well. So why wait? Join www.podstars.net now and start exploring all that they have to offer. You will not want to miss out on this amazing opportunity to elevate your podcasting career and be a part of the exciting community. So yes, head over over there. Again, the, the true crime section there is epic. None more epic than uh, our guest today. She's actually um, somewhat of a CSI genius. And I know... Um, we talked a few weeks ago about the Tiffany Valiante case, and uh, I don't know if you're familiar with it or not, but uh, I wanted to go through a bunch of cases today, but I picked this one just because of uh, it seems like it was a crime scene fail from the get-go. It's interesting to see the fallout from all of that. So um, we're going to get to Cheryl Mack McCollum in a minute, but uh, I do want to, uh, first of all, give you the mystifying case of Tiffany Valiante. Eighteen-year-old Tiffany Valiante lived with her parents, Stephen and Diane, at their rural house on Mannheim Avenue in Mays Landing, New Jersey, about 20 miles west of Atlantic City. She was a star athlete at Oakcrest High School, graduating with varsity letters in multiple sports. She had received a full scholarship to attend and play volleyball at New York's Mercy College. She was going to be a middle starter, which, according to Diane, does not normally happen for a freshman in college. Tiffany dreamed of playing volleyball in the U.S. Olympics. She loved playing softball. Diane says Tiffany wanted things in life. She describes Tiffany as always beautiful, bright, and energetic. Others described her as smart, friendly, hardworking. Diane and the rest of the family were very proud of her. On the night of July 12, 2015, four weeks after Tiffany's high school graduation, her partially clothed, barefoot, mangled body was found on a lonely, dark stretch of the Atlantic City rail line, approximately four miles from her house. She had been hit by a New Jersey transit train. Within hours, the New Jersey Transit Police claimed she had committed suicide, but Diane says there was no way she would do that. Diane wants to know what really happened to her. On Sunday, July 12, 2015, Tiffany, her parents, went to her cousin's graduation party, which was being held across the street from their house. They were there for several hours. Tiffany relaxed with relatives by the pool, took pictures, played volleyball, and made plans for decorating her new college dorm room. According to Stephen, she was having a great time. That evening, she invited some friends to come to the party. At 9.15 p.m., Tiffany left the party and headed back home to shower and change. Around that same time, Diane got a call from one of Tiffany's friends. The friend said that she was pulling up to the Valiante house and asked Diane to come over so they could say hi. Diane agreed. She told Stephen that she had to go over to the house. He went with her. When they walked up the road between the two houses, Tiffany's friend and the friend's mother pulled up. Tiffany's friend started screaming and hollering, accusing Tiffany of using her debit card without her knowledge to buy about $300 worth of clothes and food. Stephen and Diane called Tiffany on her phone and asked her to come outside. Diane defended Tiffany, saying that she had no reason to use the friend's card because she could use her parents' card. When Tiffany came outside, she denied using the card. At 9.24 p.m., about 10 minutes after arriving, Tiffany's friend and the mother drove off. By that point, Stephen had gone inside the house. Diane decided to search Tiffany's car. While doing so, she noticed Tiffany slipping her friend's debit card into her back pocket. When confronted, Tiffany told Diane she did use the card and only spent about $86. Diane and Tiffany got into an argument, with Diane asking her why she used the friend's card and saying, you know better than that, we didn't raise you that way. Diane told Tiffany that she was going to tell Stephen about what she had done. This was not the first time Tiffany had been accused of stealing. A few months earlier, she had used her parents' card without telling them. By 9.28 p.m., Tiffany was gone. Barely a minute had elapsed since Diane had left Tiffany outside. They immediately started looking for her. Stephen walked up and down the road several times. There were about 20 cars parked alongside it. However, nobody in the area had seen Tiffany. Diane called Tiffany's friend and told her Tiffany had run away. The friend quickly came back and helped search for Tiffany, along with two other friends. At first, they thought Tiffany might have been playing a joke on them by hiding in the woods and watching them search for her. But it soon became clear that that was not the case. A large group of family and friends split up into different search parties, searching by foot and by car. Diane believes someone would have seen Tiffany if she had walked down the road since she was six foot two and pretty difficult to miss. Stephen's brother, Robert Sr., says they walked up and down the streets, searched the woods, and looked behind the houses and other nearby places. He did not believe she would have walked far because she was scared to death of the dark. Over the next few hours, several of Tiffany's friends and family texted and called her, trying to figure out where she was and asking her to come home. Stephen left her a voicemail. Tiffany, please, just come home. I love you to death. You mean everything in the world to me. Please just come home. However, she never answered. At around 11 p.m., while walking up the road next to their house, Stephen discovered Tiffany's phone on the ground. It was about five feet from the side of the road. He claims he had looked in that area before, and the phone was not there. He says she would have never left without her phone. He claims she never went anywhere without it. It was in her hand 24-7, seven days a week. She even took showers with it. searching. Stephen remembered that he had a deer camera stationed at the end of the driveway. He discovered that the camera photographed Tiffany walking down the driveway at 9.28 p.m. Just one minute later, at 9.29 p.m., the camera took a photograph of Stephen, Diane, and their dog walking by. According to Diane, Tiffany was wearing a black shirt, uh, blue jean shorts. She was also wearing flat shoes that she had just bought, and she had put her hair up in a messy bob on top and a white headband. Diane says Tiffany was doing her regular stride walking down the driveway. Based on how her head appeared turned, Diane believes that someone was calling Tiffany's name. The deer camera photograph was the last confirmed sighting of her alive. At 11.30 p.m., Tiffany's family called the police. After learning about her disappearance, Stephen's brother Michael went to his mother's house, believing Tiffany might have gone there, as it was in walking distance, about a half mile of her own house. However, she was not there. Michael and the others started driving around to different places around town, but no one could find her. At around midnight, more than two hours after Tiffany was last seen, Michael decided to drive down South Pomona Road, which was not far from her house. When he got to the railroad tracks, he noticed several police cars parked on the transit access road. A Galloway Township police officer told him that somebody, possibly a female, had been hit by a train. However, Galloway Township police did not get any further involved because the incident happened in the jurisdiction of New Jersey Transit. Michael approached a New Jersey Transit police officer and asked if he had seen Tiffany. The officer said the person that was hit matched her description. At that point, Michael was hoping that the person was not Tiffany, but the police were pretty confident that it was. The officer asked Michael if he could identify the body. He says he is glad he is the one who identified Tiffany because he does not believe Stephen would have been able to handle it. The state her body was in was one of the most horrific things he had ever seen. After identifying her body, he went with the police to tell her parents. At 2.30 a.m., Diane's son-in-law told her that Michael had called and told him to stay put. A few minutes later, a police car arrived with Michael inside. He told Diane and Stephen that Tiffany had been hit by a train. Stephen wanted to go to the scene, but Michael told him he did not want to see that. Stephen says he felt like he had lost part of his life. He says he misses everything about her. Robert Sr. says the rest of the family held each other and cried. What happened to Tiffany was the most horrible thing that he could imagine. Diane was in total shock. It did not make sense to her that Tiffany had been hit by a train. At the time, they did not know what really happened. The next morning, local newspapers started reporting that Tiffany had committed suicide. According to at least one report, she had been standing on the tracks and did not move as the train approached her. Diane was devastated. She could not understand how they concluded that Tiffany had committed suicide. She says Tiffany was happy and was not depressed or suicidal. Diane notes that Tiffany was making plans to go to college in the fall. She was making plans with her roommate. She was planning a trip to Six Flags with her friends. She was making plans to play softball that Wednesday, and she had plans to go to Great Adventure Park the next morning. with her. She and her half-sister had also planned to pick up a kitten for Diane's birthday at the end of the month. Tiffany's cousin, Robert Jr., says that she showed no signs of stress when he spoke to her at the party that night. According to him, she had purchased school clothes and had things prepared. He says she was ready to make that next move. Diane says the New Jersey Transit Police determined that Tiffany committed suicide in less than 24 hours. People who knew Tiffany could not believe she would do that. Her parents initially accepted the suicide ruling, but now they are certain that she did not commit suicide. The New Jersey Transit Police and the local medical examiner's office maintain that Tiffany committed suicide by throwing herself in front of an unscheduled passenger train after walking barefoot for four miles through unlit remote woods along rocky train tracks. Paul D'Amato, the attorney for Tiffany's family, has been a trial lawyer for 46 years When he first met her parents, he noticed that they were broken and upset. After hearing the story, he decided to get the records from the New Jersey Transit Police Department. He and the family actually had to file a lawsuit to subpoena the records from them. D'Amato expected that the records would confirm that Tiffany had committed suicide, but that did not happen. He reviewed what was known about that night. New Jersey Transit Train number 4693 left Philadelphia, Pennsylvania at 9.50 p.m., heading to East Absecon Station in Atlantic City. There were about 60 passengers and crew on board at 1115 PM on a dark stretch of track near Prague Avenue and mile marker 45. Tiffany was hit by the train. It dragged her body for about a quarter mile before coming to a stop. The incident occurred about an hour and a half after she was last seen. When the train was examined later, it showed that the impact occurred on the lower left-hand side, close to the tracks. Two engineers were on board the train. A senior engineer, Wayne Daniels, and a student engineer, Marvin Olivares. Oliveras was at the controls when he had been doing the job for about a year. That night, they both signed a report saying that Tiffany dove in front of the train. Daniels told investigators that he instructed Olivares to blow the horn and ring the bell as he put on the emergency brake. D'Amato notes that Daniels told a completely different story when he was put under oath six days later. He said he was talking to the conductor when she was hit. He said he did not see anything because his back was turned. However, he did note that Oliveras blew the horn, put on the emergency brake, and told him, a girl jumped out in front of us. D'Amato also finds issues with Oliveras's testimony. Initially, when he was asked, what did you first see? He answered, I didn't see her until I was right on top of her. Ten days later, when he was put under oath, he also changed his story. He said that he saw her crouch next to the tracks when he was a half a mile and a quarter of a mile away. Then... He saw her stand up and dive in front of the train. In another interview, Olivares said that Tiffany darted out from the woods and ran onto the tracks right before she was hit. D'Amato notes that Olivares was the only witness, and he gave variations of what he saw that night. D'Amato says the New Jersey Transit Police Department stands by Oliveris' inconsistent, contradictory statements. Louise Hausman, a retired medical examiner from the Atlantic County Medical Examiner's Office, examined Tiffany's case and wrote a report about it. Houseman had worked for the medical examiner as a senior investigator for 20 years. She had been to several thousand scenes throughout her career. She was concerned by the sworn statements from Daniels and Oliveris. She notes that a great deal of weight was given to the information they provided, information that turned out not to be correct. All trains carry a major incident event recorder, which records several parameters, including the train's speed, when the handbrakes are used, when the horn is sounded. It also gives the distance the train has traveled while these events occur. According to the recorder, in 4.1 seconds, Olivares sounded the horn, struck Tiffany, applied the emergency brake. The train was traveling 80 miles per hour. Hausman is not sure if Olivares would have been able to see Tiffany jump in front of the train in that time. She believes Olivares was in a type of trauma or shock, as anyone would be in that scenario, which made it more difficult for him to remember and describe what happened. Hausman believes Olivares was rambling during his testimony and was not sure of what he actually saw. She thinks it's possible that he saw Tiffany's body parts flying in all different directions because she was being dismembered. Houseman does not think he saw Tiffany jump in front of the train. Houseman suspects Tiffany may have been dead on the tracks before she was hit. She believes that investigators should have tested Olivares for drug and alcohol intoxication. She also theorizes that if Tiffany had wanted to commit suicide, it would have been easier to do so by walking in front of a car on a much closer, heavily traveled four-lane highway. D'Amato asked private detective Jim Brennanstuhl to help with Tiffany's case. He has done police and private detective work for 45 years. He believes the police assumed Tiffany's death was a suicide from the beginning and then tailored the facts to fit their assumption. According to the reports, the train strike occurred approximately 2.6 miles from Tiffany's house. Brennanstuhl wonders why she walked that distance and jumped in front of the train there. Houseman says she was surprised when she saw the place where Tiffany was struck by the train. It was a mile from the closest intersection. It was dark, with no light sources nearby. Houseman felt there was something wrong with the whole story. Steven Rosenfeld, an advocate for Tiffany's family, is convinced she did not commit suicide. He notes that New Jersey Transit is one of America's largest transit operators and has a significant-sized police force. According to him, most transit police officers have told him their wheelhouse is not homicide or suspicious death investigations. According to Rosenfeld, the first thing investigators need to do, even in the case of a suspected homicide, is to determine whether there was any foul play. He says there is no indication that this was ever done in Tiffany's case. According to D'Amato, the area was not treated like a crime scene. It had not been roped off properly, so people were walking all around it. To Rosenfeld, the case appeared from the onset to be a textbook example of a rush to judgment. He believes they misclassified the manner of Tiffany's death. Her death certificate reads, Tiffany Valiante died shortly before midnight, July 12. The manner of death is suicide. Rosenfeld says they cannot draw conclusions that early into an investigation. Houseman notes that a suicide ruling closes Tiffany's case as far as the prosecutors and medical examiners' offices and the New Jersey Transit Police are concerned. But for the family, it is anything but closed. Diane says the police should have investigated it like they were supposed to. She claims they did not follow New Jersey state procedures. Dr. Donald Jason, a former medical examiner hired by D'Amato, believes that the New Jersey Transit Police wanted to rule Tiffany's death a suicide because it gets them off the hook. He notes that a death on the tracks due to negligence can cause increased oversight, hefty fines, and possible criminal charges. He believes that investigators treated her death as a suicide from the beginning, and that bias negatively affected how the scene was processed by responding police and medical examiner staff. According to Rosenfeld, a complete autopsy was never conducted on Tiffany. Also, a rape kit was never performed. DNA was never tested, and no organs were examined. He wonders why these things were not done. A toxicology report was done, however, it showed that there were no alcohol or drugs in Tiffany's system. Dr. Jason Ann Hausman believed that this information should have caused the manner of death to be changed to undetermined. She says there is no reason to rule a case of suicide unless they are absolutely sure about it. Tiffany's body was cremated shortly after. This was done because investigators had already done what they were supposed to do, or so they believed. According to Houseman, a detective wrote in his report that Tiffany's shoes were not found with her body or at the scene. She finds this suspicious. Diane says that when Tiffany walked away, she was wearing a headband, shorts, a t-shirt, and shoes. But when they found her body, all she had on was a sports bra and underwear. Diane wonders what happened to her shoes, shorts, and shirt. Hausman says the medical examiner should have tried to figure out what happened to Tiffany's clothing. Hausman notes that the medical examiner's report was small and scant. It stated that Tiffany's limbs were ripped from her torso and that her face and head were completely crushed. It listed her cause of death as multiple traumatic injury. Hausman found no evidence that the medical examiner reviewed Tiffany's medical records or contacted Tiffany's doctor or anyone from her school. Houseman and D'Amato claim that investigators never interviewed Tiffany's family or friends. Diane and other family members claim that no one questioned them about the case. Her cousin Robert Jr. believes they just ruled it a suicide because she had been hit on the tracks. Houseman and Rosenfeld criticized the police for not conducting a psychological autopsy, which could indicate whether or not Tiffany was at risk for suicide. Rosenfeld says that every pathologist he talked to said that before a suicide ruling can be made, they must determine why the victim did it. According to him, no clear motive for suicide was ever identified. According to Hausman, Tiffany had no history of medical or emotional problems, mental illness, drug abuse, or alcohol abuse. She was an active athlete who was loved and doted on by her family. Hausman examined some of Tiffany's text messages. This was reportedly not done by police. She did not find anything unusual about them. Tiffany had recently broken up with her girlfriend, but to Hausman, the breakup seemed amicable. According to Diane, Tiffany's girlfriend was from Philadelphia. The couple broke up on the Friday before her death. However, according to Diane, the breakup was mutual. Based on the phone records, Houseman says there did not seem to be any hostility between the two. In fact, according to records, Tiffany had started another relationship with a woman she had met online. According to Diane, the night before Tiffany died, she had posted, I'm kind of content, RN. Houseman wonders why Tiffany would commit suicide. The morning after Tiffany's death, her uncle, Robert Sr., and cousin Robert Jr. went to the area where she died. They did not want her parents to see what had happened. They claimed there were still pieces of Tiffany left behind. They searched the area to see if they could find anything of hers that was missing, such as her shoes, headband, earrings, jewelry, and shorts. Robert Sr. remembers picking up various pieces of bone and skin that belonged to her. Robert Sr. found one of the bracelets Tiffany was wearing and gave it to Diane. He says picking up her remains was the most devastating thing he has ever done. While walking along the tracks, Robert Jr. found bloody rubber gloves lying on the ground. He believes the scene was contaminated. He says the New Jersey Transit Police were not trained for that type of scene, and they did not do a good job of cleaning the tracks. They searched for several hours, but never found Tiffany's shoes, headband, or clothing. Diane, walking the next day, discovered Tiffany's shoes underneath a tree next to the road. She claims they'd searched that area before, but never found anything. She also discovered Tiffany's headband about six feet away. The location was about one mile from their home, and about two miles from where Tiffany had been struck by the train. According to Diane, the shoes were almost side-by-side side and about a foot apart. The way they were positioned led her to believe that someone had taken Tiffany right out of them. Others believe they were placed there. Diane immediately called Stephen, who called the police. The New Jersey Transit Police took pictures of the shoes and put them in a brown bag. Diane says she has not heard anything else about the shoes since then. Houseman says the items belonging to Tiffany were never sent out for DNA testing. Five years after her death, her family won a court order... And paid to have the items tested but according to houseman the chain of custody was broken and the evidence was stored in a reckless manner so it was of no use for example tiffany's shirt had been stored in a plastic bag tied into a knot it became covered with mold making it scientifically useless other key items had been left outdoors and exposed to the elements making them contaminated furthermore the blood card which contained tiffany's dna was so mishandled that analysts reevaluating it could not be sure it was hers without testing her parents' DNA. According to D'Amato, an axe with red markings on it was found near the scene. The axe could not be tested because it had since gone missing. A knife was also found nearby. A towel found near the scene had blood belonging to an unknown male on it. However, the blood could not be tested for DNA because the sample had been contaminated as well. An unidentified male DNA profile was found on another piece of evidence, but it is not known if it belongs to a suspect or somebody involved in the collection process. After Tiffany's shoes were found, her family and friends searched the woods along Tilden Road. A keychain, similar to one attached to rental car keys, was found about 10 feet away. About 15 feet away, a sweatshirt was found. According to Diane, neither item belonged to Tiffany. Unfortunately, the police misplaced the keychain before it could be analyzed. According to Diane, Tiffany's shorts are still missing. D'Amato wonders how Tiffany's shoes got to that area. He theorizes that whoever was responsible for her death picked up her shoes and threw them in the woods as they left the scene. Another theory is that Tiffany took her shoes and headband off at the spot where they were found and then walked barefoot to the tracks. Brendan Stuhl says it does not make sense for her to take off her shoes and put them in the woods and then walk barefoot to the tracks. He notes that the access road's surface was rough and had a lot of sharp rocks. The motto claims there were no markings on Tiffany's feet, even though he, she had apparently walked barefoot along train tracks. Hausman says there were no lacerations, abrasions, or indications of soil, grass, stone, glass, or gravel. Diane says that if Tiffany had walked on the tracks themselves, she would have had splinters on her feet. She says the fact that Tiffany's feet were clean proves she did not walk from the woods to the tracks. Robert Sr. says he had difficulty walking on the tracks with work shoes on. He does not believe she walked there. Houseman believes that if Tiffany had walked along Tilton Road, someone would have noticed her since he was so tall. According to D'Amato, the deer camera photograph of Tiffany shows a car's headlights coming towards her from the opposite direction. He believes she voluntarily entered a vehicle that night. Diane believes Tiffany got into a vehicle with someone she knew and was comfortable with. D'Amato believes that once Tiffany entered the vehicle, someone grabbed her phone and threw it out the window as they drove away. Diane theorizes that the people in the vehicle tried to rape Tiffany, but she escaped and ran into the woods. Diane believes that Tiffany hung onto the tree next to where her shoes were found to keep them from taking her. Robert Sr. believes they took Tiffany to an area next to the tracks. He describes the area as desolate and spooky. He believes the train and nearby highway would have drowned out any noise. Robert Jr. says the area was very remote, which could have made it easy for someone to kill her without anyone noticing. Another theory brought up by Diane was that Tiffany escaped from her attackers and was chased directly onto the train tracks where she was hit. Dr. Jason feels that this theory is more probable than suicide. According to D'Amato, the crime scene photograph shows what appears to be a large pool of blood at the point where the train hit Tiffany. This suggests to him that she was laying there bleeding before she was hit by the train. According to him... The police did not test the blood because they claimed that they had enough evidence to conclude it was a suicide. So it was never determined that if it was Tiffany's blood on the tracks or not. According to D'Amato, the medical examiner's report says that Tiffany's arms and legs were cut from her torso. He believes she was harmed before her body was placed on the tracks. He believes she was laid across the tracks with her arms off to one side and her legs off to the other. Diane says the fact that Tiffany's feet and hands were intact indicates that she was not standing on the track when she was hit by the train. D'Amato asked private investigator Chuck Atkinson to work on Tiffany's case. He had worked for the New Jersey State Police for 26 years. He was a detective for 17 years. Following Tiffany's death, D'Amato and her family set up a hotline, hoping for anonymous tips from the public. In November 2016, they received a call from a convenience store manager who had overheard three teenage coworkers discussing Tiffany's case. The manager also went to the police with this information. In a police interview, the manager said he overheard his coworkers saying that Tiffany's death was a homicide. According to the manager, the coworkers did not have anything to do with her death, but were merely retelling something that they had heard. One of them claimed to have seen Tiffany at the graduation party that night. According to the manager, the coworkers mentioned the argument between Tiffany and her friend about the stolen debit card and that Tiffany had left after it. They said that the friend was still angry about her card being stolen. The friend reportedly called someone. The friend reportedly called someone, a woman, who came and picked her up by the truck with an unidentified guy. Then they went and picked up Tiffany. According to the co-workers, the three people in the truck took Tiffany into an area near the train tracks, stripped her naked, held her at gunpoint, and humiliated her. The police later interviewed the co-workers. However, they all denied saying anything. The police also noted that the manager's information was third-hand and full of holes. The New Jersey Transit Police and the New Jersey Medical Examiner's Office reviewed Tiffany's case in 2018. The finding of suicide was upheld. Some evidence does seem to support the suicide theory. On July 16, 2015, four days after Tiffany's death, the Atlantic County Sheriff's Office sent a canine handler with a bloodhound to see if they could pick up her scent from her house to the tracks. They wanted to see if she might have been picked up by a vehicle that night and driven to the tracks. If that were the case, then the bloodhound would most likely lose her scent along the way. The canine handler was not told where Tiffany was killed. He wanted to conduct the blind test. Over the next hour, the bloodhound led the handler from Tiffany's driveway along a 3.2-mile route that ended in the general area of where she was hit by the train. D'Amato, however, claims the test was unreliable because it had rained in the days following Tiffany's death. Diane admitted that she and Tiffany had been having issues in the year leading up to Tiffany's death. However, she considered it to be normal teenage stuff and nothing that went beyond the typical problems teenage girls and their mothers often have. It was noted that the two had been bickering more frequently, and in 2014, child protection officials visited their home on three different occasions after one of Tiffany's teachers noticed some bruising on her arm. Diane admitted to punching Tiffany during an argument. A caseworker recommended that Tiffany and Diane seek counseling. During their only session in November 2014, Diane said she had been short-tempered due to menopausal changes. Tiffany told the therapist she was neither depressed nor suicidal. Two days after the session, Tiffany's grandfather died. She started skipping classes and smoking marijuana. She also took money from Diane's bank account without telling her. The therapist concluded that Tiffany and Diane had a stable relationship but had trouble communicating. Their case was closed the following month. In early 2015, six months before her death, Tiffany came out as gay. At first, Diane told her she was going through a phase. However, Diane and Stephen claimed that they later accepted Tiffany's sexuality. Some classmates told investigators that she might have been having a tougher time with her sexuality than she had let on him. A few of Tiffany's friends had told investigators that she had harmed herself, intentionally cutting her wrist and leg on two separate occasions. One friend claimed that Tiffany had been depressed. The friend suggested untreated mental illness may have played a role in her death. Tiffany's parents did not believe these claims. D'Amato notes that many questions regarding Tiffany's death remain unanswered. How did she get from her house to the spot where she was hit by the train? Did she walk? Did someone pick her up and drive her there? Was her death an accident, suicide, or murder? He believes there are people out there who know what happened to her. He begs him to come forward and to help Tiffany's family. Tiffany's family also hopes the state of New Jersey will change the manner of her death from suicide to undetermined. Her family also hopes to identify the persons that they believe killed her and left her on the tracks. They have filed lawsuits against several unnamed defendants, alleging their involvement in Tiffany's alleged kidnapping, assault, and subsequent murder. A $40,000 reward is being offered for information on this case. So there you have it. If you guys want to uh, hit me up, let me know uh, if you have any thoughts or theories on the Tiffany Valiante case. I'd love to hear them, but... um... Again, that one sounds like a mess, and I really hope that uh, that her family can get closure, whether it's good news or bad news. Yeah, so speaking of good news, uh, I think we should get over to the my super awesome guest for today. Ladies and gentlemen, Cheryl Mack McCall. Our next guest needs no introduction. She is an Emmy Award winner. She was two-time Police Department Employee of the Year. She's an inductee in the National Law Enforcement Hall of Fame. She's a crime con staple. Been on Dr. Oz, America's Most Wanted, Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, 2020, and so much more. We welcome the queen of true crime, Cheryl Mack McCollum. How's it going? Thank you,
1: thank you, thank you. Uh,
0: you know what? I, I, just as I was introducing you, I know I had to leave a lot of stuff out, but uh, have you looked at your resume lately? It's insane.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and I like to tell people some of that stuff's true. <laughs>
0: Well, yeah, especially if you're applying for a job.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You know, honestly, I will say right out of the gate, I have some incredible things on my resume, but they don't have a lot to do with me. I have been very lucky, and I have been associated with some extraordinary people that were very gracious in sharing not just cases, but the spotlight. So I will say that, absolutely. I've been luckier that i've been good
0: well i don't know if that's true but uh if any, we were just saying like uh, do you think it's it's because you're in uh, native atlanta we were just saying that like atlanta really seems to be like not so much a hotbed for true crime but it just seems like a lot of stuff is going down in atlanta
1: a lot is going on in atlanta and i'll tell you we are the home of some extraordinary people but to prove to you what i'm saying I guess it was 30 years ago, I was assigned to the major case division. And the prosecutor that was assigned to that division through the crime Commission was Nancy Grace. No kidding. So when I tell you, it's pretty lucky because, you know, she went on to do some pretty good things. So, (laughs) you know, you have that connection, not because of anything I did. It was the luck of the draw. And it just happened to work out pretty good.
0: Just come out and say it. Nancy Grace would be lost without you.
1: She would. (laughs) She's been riding my coattails for years.
0: (laughs) What is it like working with, like, uh, I just, I'm always curious is how is like, um, you're, you know, obviously a law enforcement person. Like, how do you end up in show business?
1: Well, that's how. Uh, Nancy was very gracious and a decent friend and would have me on her show. And that just kind of matriculated into these other little avenues where people would say, oh, my gosh, you're on Nancy Grace. Will you, you know, please come here or please work with us on that. And, you know, again, being from Atlanta, um, I became real good friends with Karen Greer. Karen, you know, excuse me. Karen is a famed, you know, uh, reporter here. She's an anchor with WSB Channel 2. And so Karen approached me several years ago and said, Hey, let's do some cold cases together. And it's just from that friendship because I've known her for years and she's one of those reporters that you can tell her something off the record and it stays off the record Yeah. (laughs) and you can call her and give her a heads up, but tell her, Hey, don't ever let it come back to me and it don't come back to you. (laughs) Um, So when we were working, that's how the Emmy came about. And again, just Karen being gracious, saying no, come hop on camera with me. So yeah,
0: that's that's awesome. Yeah. Um, speaking of uh um I was just gonna say how I came across you is um you were you auctioned off one of the coolest experiences I've ever heard of with um <laughs> Stephanie Bowers charity last year. Mm-hmm. And it was, uh, you actually got to work a cold case with you and it wasn't, you know, after we spoke on the phone after that and you were like, it's not a, it wasn't a tourist, uh, trick. You're like, you actually worked a cold case with somebody.
1: I picked them up in the airport in my squad car. Absolutely. We went to work immediately. And let me just say something about Stephanie. She is as kind as she is beautiful. And we had so much fun auctioning that off for, you know, CrimeCon to give money to uh, Kim's charity, whose brother Ron Goldman, you know, was murdered, you know, along with uh, Nicole Brown. So,
0: not you know, by OJ though, apparently.
1: Yeah, straight up by OJ. I'll say it. So <laughs>
0: <laughs> you heard it here first.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm sure that's shocking to everybody. <laughs> You know, but, you know, she is. She's just wonderful. And, of course, Kim Goldman is wonderful. So that was a, a just an honor for me to be involved with that in any way, shape, or form. But when the person that won it got to Atlanta, she flew in. I picked her up. We went straight to the crime scene. Because um, one of my mantras is, you can't understand it if you don't walk it.
0: And you know what? I agree with that 100%. I know there was a lot of nonsense <laughs> with... Um... Uh, them taking down the, uh, the Idaho uh, building and uh, mm-hmm. they were, everyone was, you know, especially the prosecution was like, well, you're not touching it until this whole thing kind of gets sorted out because,
1: right
0: you know, it, it's one of those things you have to walk. You got to really be able to take it in.
1: As a mama, if that had happened to one of my children, I would personally want to burn it down. I yeah. get it. I completely understand. But the reality is that structure at this point has powerful information that if that jury decides they need to see it, that they need to understand how somebody can come in on that middle floor and then where he went to the third floor, they need to be able to walk that to go, oh, he could easily get in and out of here in 14 minutes.
0: Yeah, no, that's what if a picture is worth a thousand words, then a walkthrough is worth, you know, 10,000 words. Amen. Yep. Um, so let's just start just from the beginning. I'm curious. Um, so if someone, you know, that um, let's use that for an example. Somebody figures out that there's a crime scene there, a horrific one, and they all they end up calling 911. How does this ultimately end up on your desk?
1: In my real job or at the Institute?
0: Um, either one.
1: Okay. Well, my real job, I, am, I tell people all the time, I'm not a first responder. I'm a last responder so for me i get to a scene once it's secure and i start working from the minute i get out of my car i start taking pictures so i'm not one of those folks that starts taking pictures you know when they get to the body so to speak i want up and down the street i want the mailbox i want the backyard i want the side yard i want the front yard i want to i call it a 361. so you know, pictures to me are a money tree, and I just want as many as I can. And then, you know how you watch TV and people walk up to the either the first cop on the scene or the detective, and they say, hey, what do we got? I don't do that. I want to walk that scene by myself, and I want to assess what I think we have, and then I'm going to talk to you about it. If you and I are on the same, you know, plane, then that's a good thing. If I see it as an accident and you see it as a suicide, we got to go back. I'm missing something or you're missing something. So we've got to get on the same page. That's just the bottom line.
0: Yeah, no, I I, want to talk about that in a few minutes with the whole Tiffany Valiante case, because I've looked at that. I've I've not obviously that, but uh, I've I've watched the specials on it. I've read, you know, on the the case file and all that sort of thing. And that just screams to me that that is not a suicide.
1: And see, and that's one of those things, again, if you start from ground zero and you work independently and then you let that first detective work independently and then you talk to EMS and then you talk to the family and then you talk to friends and then you talk to neighbors and you talk to somebody that maybe knew them five years ago and then somebody that knew them for 10 minutes, all of that should paint a picture for you and it needs to make sense to you this is not a career where guessing gets you anywhere. You have to have facts and you have to have evidence, whether you like it or not. I mean, you may want something to be an accident and it's a suicide. And then that's what you've got to explain to that mama, but you've got to be able to do it with facts because that person not only knew this person better than anybody else, but it's going to be harder for her to accept that information more than anybody else. So you've got to be a hundred percent clear before you start talking suicide to any family. In my opinion.
0: No, absolutely. Now, uh, my other question was like, when you were just saying that you are like the last responder, have you, I mean, I'm sure it's happened a lot, but is there like a, a case that sticks out where you got there and the crime scene was so poorly managed up until that point?
1: Well, as the crime scene investigator, I would manage that scene. That, that scene becomes mine the minute I get there. Not even the chief of police can tell me he's coming into the scene. So I protect that scene. Now, before I get there, if you've got, you know, a young officer that didn't know not to let people walk all through, that's one thing. But again, the minute I get there, that stops. So hopefully I'm there fast enough. If I'm on duty, I should be there within five minutes. If I'm being called in again it might be 30-40 minutes depending on where I'm at Um, but hopefully they're doing I know my department they're going to do their job they're going to put that tape up they're going to keep everybody out but I want to be really clear you've got departments and everybody hasn't had the same training everybody doesn't have the same detectives Um, they don't have necessarily even the equipment but if you are really young and you've only kind of seeing crime scene from TV you ain't ready you ain't ready to work a case like the Long Island serial killer you need help and that's sometimes where we see somebody like Moscow Idaho bring in state police bring in FBI they need the help and there's nothing wrong with that nothing at all
0: and you know it's interesting because actually next week we're talking with uh, Frank Fugluzzi the former assistant director of the FBI Mm mm-hmm and uh, one of the questions I had, it's just funny you touched on it, when they start to bring all these people in, is, uh, you know, you need help. Especially with, um, you said, the, the Long Island serial killer. Like, this is it's just going to unravel and unravel and unravel. And I, I don't think, like, um, you know, how do you put a team together that that big that you have to, you know, go with, with a fine tooth comb through the, mm-hmm. you know, the last 50 years of this guy's life?
1: The very first thing you got to do is get everybody in the same room. And you've got to have a real leader and being a real leader means you can also let go a little bit of your ego because if you've got somebody like the FBI that can take a ton of cell phone data and funnel that through to give you a phone number and give you pings and give you a radius, you can't do that. Let them do it and be grateful. It, it says nothing about your department that you don't have that capability. Like my department for example, we don't have a helicopter, but I can, <laughs> but I can get one. I was
0: just going to say you have enough pull now that you can just uh they like Are send us thinking? over to show you like send the chopper. I need a chopper. Send it.
1: Roll that bird. Let's get on with it because but that's the thing. If if I don't have a you know, thermal imaging drone, I got a buddy at the department next to me that will bring that thing over and put that thing in the air to look for a lost child but that's what I'm talking about there's no ego in that everybody wants the same result we want to find that lost child so whether it's me or a neighboring department who cares we're all going to high five at the end we're all going to get credit at the end so even if it's hey Cheryl great call getting Fred over here Fred great job the child's found That's all that matters.
0: Yeah. You know, uh, case closed sort of thing in a good way, obviously. Um, You you were just saying now when uh, they would call you in or, uh, you know, obviously being at the top of your game as it is now, do you get some of those days where it's like, you know, there's five or six people trying to get a hold of you to come check out the crime scene and you're like, you know, I'm only one person, one at a time.
1: (laughs) Well, I mean, everything is a triage. So, I mean, the most, you know, crisis, oriented scene is going to get my attention. So if you have a homicide, then the burglary is obviously going to wait. But I'm coming. It's just not going to be right now. But the great thing about it is fingerprints ain't going nowhere. You know, I mean, I'm coming, but I have to, you know, go in order of, you know, what's the most significant.
0: I've heard, uh, sorry, speaking about fingerprints, is they're actually relatively easy to wipe off.
1: Yeah, it's pretty easy. I mean, it literally only takes you taking a rag or your hand or a shirt or anything and just, you know, smudging them over. Um, but here's the thing, smudging it over. doesn't get rid of the DNA. Now. And a lot of people make mistakes where they wipe down where they remember they touched. But if you're working a scene and my mind starts to work kind of like a movie, so I will stand there and see they came in this door and they went out the back door. So in order for them to, Take that money and to hurt this woman, and to bust a vase over her head, they've had to touch a lot of things they don't remember they touched. Hmm. So I'm gonna throw powder all over that place, and you know I've had some pretty good luck. Yeah.
0: <laughs> what's the biggest? Uh, I know Nancy Grace. Like I said, she's lucky to have you. Um, <laughs> what's the What's the biggest? Uh, just out of curiosity, the biggest area you've ever had to do like a fingerprint or a um, DNA search.
1: Uh, well, I mean, we've had some outdoor scenes. I don't know. It's so much uh, fingerprint, but it would be, I'm looking for footprints. I'm looking for, you know, a cigarette butt or a shoe print something. Um, you know, the Olympic Park bombing was pretty big. The, you know, we had that whole area. Um, I was dealing with witnesses and victims, but that whole area was pretty good. I've worked a plane crash that was pretty good. Uh, I was sent to the he, Pentagon, 9-11, that was pretty significant. So, you know, we've had some, you know, it's been okay. I've had some do you good get, when they send
0: you When they send you to the Pentagon, do you get like, uh, you know, full access to everything? Or it's just kind of like, you know, you can go here, you can go there?
1: <laughs> I would love to say yes to that question. No, absolutely <laughs> not. My my job there was basically debriefing and getting information from people to get it to the right people. But no, I I was not given any kind of real access at all, except to people.
0: Oh, okay. Because I was thinking, you know, like the X-Files, you know, they have that one door with, you know, something know. written on it. And you want to go in there, that's where all the secrets are.
1: <laughs> Again, I would love to say yes. I would love to say, uh, you know, I could tell you, but then I'd have to kill you. But no. Yeah. <laughs> It wasn't that, but I got access to a really uh, unbelievable, I guess, interview room. And I got to talk to some extraordinary heroes. And I think that's probably about all I can tell you, but, um, it was a remarkable experience from start to finish. No question.
0: Yeah, no, that's amazing. So one of the other ones I was asking because you were just talking about you know going crime scene after crime scene Uh, why CSI because it does it seems like one of those jobs where it's just gonna be one horrifying experience after another
1: you know I think it's like beauty I mean one person could look at a piece of art and love it and another person come along and think it's junk so for me it's the most important part of an investigation because If I don't get it, you ain't going to have it. So we can watch what Othram is doing right now. Othram is doing some incredible cold cases where they are identifying victims and they're identifying killers like three and four a day. Every one of those successes came from a crime scene investigator period. Othram can't test it. Think about it, right? So the only thing they can test is what somebody picked up from a live scene. So I often use the analogy. My son is a lacrosse goalie for the university of Alabama. And sometimes when he was first starting to play, he would get so down on himself if he missed a goal. But I explained to him every single other person on your team had to fail for them to even shoot on you. Right? much less make a goal. So you're their last shot. Well, that's how I see my job. The worst things happened. I can't do anything about that. I can't prevent it. But I can doggone well do something about somebody going to prison for it. Right. So that's how I see it.
0: So uh, speaking, you know, with, you know, hundreds of thousands of cold cases rolling around, how do you how do you pick one? Like, or is it just kind of like, You know, give me one where it's not so so much close to being solved, but give me one that's, we'll use the word solvable.
1: There's a couple of ways we go about it. One, if I hear about a case where I know I can do something about it, and maybe the detective hasn't heard about it. So there was a case in Savannah, Georgia, where this young girl was stabbed 130 times, hogtied, and run over by a car. Oh, my God. Well I was pretty sure because they found her within hours that whoever hogtied her their DNA would be inside the knots on that rope. and I know Francine Bardot and I know the Bardot method is solid but I was pretty sure this young detective had never heard of Francine Bardot so if you don't know it exists you wouldn't test it so I connected those two people, so it was a cold case. I knew I could do something. Whether it results in a arrest or not, it's worth a shot. And then, let's say this doesn't result in the, you know, the ending that we wanted. That detective now, for the next 20 years, has Francine in her pocket. I consider that a win.
0: Yeah, definitely, it's ed- education, right?
1: That's what I'm saying, and not just an education. If she has another case where she thinks, "Wait, this guy grabbed her shirt and ripped it," I bet his DNA's on there. Then get it to Francine and get it to Othram, and then game on, baby.
0: Was there? So she uh, d- knows that now. Was there DNA on the rope?
1: Um, <laughs> there was DNA on the rope. There was DNA on her uh, belt loops of her pants. So. She's closer than she's ever been.
0: That's amazing. It's also one of those I could imagine if you were looking at the file and you're like, there's got to be a DNA on the rope. There's got to be DNA on the rope. And then they test it and yep. there's not. And you're like, shit. <laughs> well, we got to look for it somewhere else.
1: Listen, that has happened. I'm telling you. I had another case. Uh, it was a beheading and dismemberment where she was put in several bags. Mm. And I was just adamant, we've got to test those trash bags. And nothing 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 i still i still am in shock over that one but
0: is 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 there ever you know like not heat so much as like you know testing all those trash bags and doing all that work i could imagine is expensive do they ever kind of say like you know is this really worth the money to try to work this out
1: (laughs) there are a lot of chiefs of police and sheriffs that they're in a bad situation and here's why You have to set your budget the year before for approval. So it's hard halfway in the year, at the end of the year, to want to do something that might cost twenty grand.
0: How many murders are there going to be next year, and can we afford it?
1: (laughs) Right. So you've got to get creative sometimes, and every now and then you've got to do some fundraising. And in the case of Savannah, that's exactly what we did. Uh, We asked for people to help fund what she was trying to do. So there's a lot of people that'll come forward and help you.
0: That's amazing. Mm-hmm. Because again, you're right. If you have to set the budget the year before and come August, you know, a bunch yeah. of horrific stuff happens. You're like, well, listen, you exactly. know, we got we to gotta kind of pick a more important case to work on, which it's impossible because. It's
1: impossible. And you, you can't say that one is more important than the other. I mean, especially when you start talking to mamas and daddies and siblings and grandmama and they're all important and they are. And the bottom line is, no matter what cold case you come to me with, there's a killer walking around. And that's that's not okay. Horrifying. Yeah. And some of them have been walking around 30 years. You
0: know. Well, that's with your Long Island serial killer. It's just, uh, you know, we we, we were talking about it on socials a few days ago. And I know it was... um, when they, were, when they were putting the whole Ted Bundy thing together, they would just work backwards to when he was either on vacation or on road trips and that sort of thing. And I know now I think that they're looking into when uh, he was in Las Vegas and there's some Correct. similarities there.
1: Sure. And the, the great thing is if Rex is the Long Island serial killer, he's been on the grid. So when he had the um, timeshare, you have to pick a week and then go through the management of the timeshare to check in and all that they're going to know absolutely when he was coming and going they know that and he had two timeshares there so they're going to have own paper in real time when he checked in when he checked out
0: that again it seems like an impossible amount of work like even if you take assuming he went there for two weeks yeah how could you go through you know 14 hours 16 hours a day for two weeks about what somebody does like again working i I guess it's an active case but it's technically i guess a case is cold after what 48 hours
1: well the trail starts to go cold but technically we don't consider something a cold case until about three to five years have passed really but in his case i don't know that they even knew there were connections even with the victims in Las Vegas, much less outward. So now what they're going to do, let's say they go to the management office and they say, yeah, he checked in on these dates. So now they're going to have a week. During that week, can we find a credit card? Can we find a cell phone bill? Can we find anything? Did somebody post something online? Did he say he was at this restaurant or anything? They're going to comb everything they can.
0: It's impossible I, I just I, it just it sounds impossible
1: it it does and it doesn't. so again, you know three years, five years, most people still have stuff on their Facebook page where they went to this concert or this show, or especially in Vegas, and if he's not doing any of that and his wife's not with him, all of those things may be clues, but you start to put him there. On those dates that are relevant, plus on one of the victims in Vegas, they have DNA. If that comes back to be him, money trick.
0: How long does it take to get, uh, I mean, assuming you, you don't push it through because you're famous and that's what you do. If you, uh, like you've been saying before with the rope, assuming you can get the rope and the chain of uh, custody, I know is a big one to make sure that it's a, it's a quality sample. How long does it take to actually break that down and figure out whose DNA it is?
1: Oh, it takes a minute. Um, I mean, we, the case in Savannah, I mean, it took, I think nine months.
0: Oh my God.
1: Yeah. It's not fast. And again, it's almost like a conveyor belt. And I'll give you an example. I know you're probably familiar with Othram. Well, four years ago, nobody knew who they were. Mm -hmm. Well, now you can't hardly get in the door because everybody's (laughs) The secret is out. (laughs) The secret is out. So that's the kind of thing that happens, right?
0: But I'm I'm sure, I mean, with bigger cases and stuff like that, you can push some of the stuff through because you you talked about it earlier with every cold case that there's a murderer walking around. And you don't hear that said like that. So, you know... if people are working there or people working with you and stuff like that, and there is, you know, a horrific cold case, you got to think, you know, mm-hmm. we don't want to, I, I don't want to jump to the front of the line, but you know, I've I random, I, I'm not saying one person's life is worth less than the other with like a random shooting. But for your example, the person was stabbed, you know, 130 times. Mm-hmm. Like the person who did that, it, 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 we have to figure out a way at least to narrow this down and kind of go after him.
1: Yeah. 130 times. Hog tatter and then ran over her with a car. Everybody should want that person off the street.
0: You know what I mean? Like It's not like one of those things where, I, like with OJ, there were some people that, you know, on that side sure. of the team. you got to figure 100% of the people are going to want this person caught.
1: Right. And, you know, let's talk about OJ for a minute. I understand being a fan. I understand not wanting to believe that OJ Simpson could end up murdering two people i get that but when we sit down and have an under you know honest conversation who else watch oj's behavior right why would you ever in your life have a mansion with a gate that you park on the outside of that gate i call bs right there
0: yeah you're gonna open that
1: gate Park up there next to that beautiful home and go inside. You're not going to park on the street.
0: That's the reason you have gates.
1: (laughs) Hello. So right off the bat, you know that's bogus. Yeah. Then he leaves and goes to Chicago, right? Now, the police don't see him. They don't know nothing about what's going on with him. When they get him on the phone, he's like, oh, my gosh, this is horrible. This is awful. He never once asked about his children because he knew they were safe.
0: Mm.
1: you're telling me your ex-wife could be murdered in the doorway of her home while your children are upstairs sleeping and you're not freaking out about your children
0: come on yeah, I, you know it's, 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 su- it's such a great point because uh, again, when you read or watch a lot of true crime stuff it's usually uh, the killer or suspected killer there's something off about their behavior in that first 10 hours 12 hours
1: sure Well, here's the other thing. Everybody says that they set him up by putting little bitty drops of blood on the car and all that, right? In order to set somebody up with DNA, you have to know that person's bleeding. They didn't know OJ was bleeding. He was in Chicago. They didn't know he was hurt. And there is not a cop alive who's going to set you up with a drop of blood and have it be mixed with Nicole and Ron. Yeah. That makes no sense. If a cop is dirty and they're gonna set you up, that murder weapon's gonna be in your car.
0: One hundred percent. So Yeah, 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 because you're not gonna use evidence that's almost impossible to find. You're right. You're gonna, you know, yeah. get the person drunk and get them to hold your gun and then you hide the gun in their trunk.
1: That's how you do it.
0: <laughs> coming from you. I mean, you, let's
1: okay? just be honest. <laughs> I mean, let's be honest. That's not how you set somebody up.
0: No. I know, I know with that case though, there was a ton of chain of, uh, uh chain of evidence issues. There
1: were some things absolutely done wrong.
0: You don't yeah. put a
1: vial of blood in the pocket of your coat and put it on a chair and walk away. I get yeah. that. But I still say when this all went down, He would have had to have been injured in order to leave his blood and they wouldn't have known that, especially with the gloves. And again, we can test that stuff now, pull it out archives, guarantee you that's his blood on those gloves, test it, freaking do it. Let's put this thing to rest. There was also, and this is why I say, I want to walk that scene, then my detective is going to walk the scene and then we're going to walk it together because they missed a piece of evidence that would have pretty much, I think been the nail in the last piece that they needed. There was a bloody thumbprint on the back gate. They notated it and never went back to collect it. But if that was just a mistake, there was so much, I mean, it's just a human error. When you have a scene like that and there's blood droplets and there's two bodies and there's all of this going on and there's all this chaos. Um, then they're running to the other location, the other home. I mean, there's, I can't imagine what was going on. And they probably had too many cooks in the kitchen, and it was notated, and just they never went back. It was just a mistake. But if that was his thumbprint in one of their bloods or a combination of their blood, that would have been good all day.
0: So is that uh, like you said that was missed, and there might have been a lot of stuff that was missed. Is that on the crime scene investigator, like you with too many cooks? Could could the CSI have gotten there and said, "Listen, everybody, clear out. Let's just you know tape it off or whatever we do, and just do it one step at a time." Where that first six hours was just a cluster, and right. you know stuff gets tainted, stuff gets moved, stuff gets missed, and then yeah. it's time to scramble.
1: Here's an analogy: If you have a two-year-old and you're at a family reunion, you could lose track of that two year old like that because you think grandma's got him, the aunt's got him, the wife's got him, whatever. And all of a sudden, nobody has him. Mm. It happens. If you've got that many people all responsible, all love that child, but where did he go? Well, I thought you had him. Well, I thought he was on the swing with you. Well, I thought he was in the pool with you. And all of a sudden the child, you're looking everywhere. It happens. And sometimes you've got to designate one person. <laughs> You're in charge of this thing. And that's why I'm telling you, a lead is not a negative thing. Somebody being in charge is paramount.
0: Yeah, so uh, speaking of being in charge, <laughs> when you, uh, you ultimately get there and, and you've, you've broken everything down and uh, saying you find nothing, And, you know, you've spent a week. How long does it normally take to process, just say, an average crime scene?
1: I mean, let's say if it's a burglary. I mean, it might be an hour, hour and a half. But, again, I'm going to go in. Then I want the detective to go in the same path that I went. And then I want to go in with him. So that way, I'm not missing anything. And I am real clear on what he wants me to collect. Period.
0: It just seems like, again, I'm fascinated with the CSI aspect of your job because it just seems like, again, not an impossible job you have, but just something that's so difficult because you have to just, you know, like we always say, oh, go through it with a fine tooth comb. Like it's, you know, just check it out, check it out. But you actually have to do that to solve a murder. And just to me, that's fascinating.
1: Well, let's talk about the Long Island serial killer. Did you see the amount of things they took out of that house?
0: Insane. I I remember it was just skids and skids and skids. It was insane.
1: What's going to be critical about that scene, and I have said before, and I will say to you, I would request an airplane hanger. And I would need tables. Just tables. Put the mail over here. Put photographs over here. Put journals over here. Put files over here. I don't know how it connects. I don't know if it even does connect, but I would take it anyway.
0: That, would be, that would be the part of that that would drive you nuts. If they dropped off 10 skids and you spent a year sorting everything out and you're like, we have right. nothing here.
1: Okay. But let's say he's a person that keeps maps. I don't know what these maps are. And if he's got a map of Connecticut and Nevada and South Carolina and New York and New Jersey... Oh, I want those. I firmly believe this man kept journals and maps and codes. I think he had a system where he took some type of diary type aspect and kept a log. I do, but I might not recognize that's what it is. Being that he was an architect, I might have missed it. So I'm going to take all that so I can look at it at our leisure to determine if it's relevant or not.
0: Most serial killers, I mean, I, I was going to talk about that, too, because um, you, uh, when you were you know, honing your technique, you actually did work with a lot of famous murderers and serial killers to kind of develop mm-hmm. this technique you came up with.
1: Absolutely. I, I think it's important not just to look at what you can learn from killers, but I think it's important you've got all these experts at your disposal, too. So if you take all these experts and what they're telling you and what all these killers are telling you when you start to develop how you're going to operate it's going to make you better excuse me like I don't know if those are baseball cards behind you but if you were to become a baseball coach then there's some that you might want to mimic a little bit right so you're not going to ignore Yogi Berra you're going to pay attention what did he do what did he do right And then you might incorporate that. And then you might even say, wait a minute, it's not baseball, but old girl at Tennessee, Pat Summit, she kind of knew something. So you may incorporate her deal by saying they may be better, but they're not going to work harder. So you start to take from all these people so that your technique works the best for you, where you can back it up and say, this is why I did it this way. So to me, it's the last 24, what I call a 361. That's the way I do it. You know?
0: So, you know, again, you, you interviewed a lot of people. So take with the, with Rex, for example, Mm -hmm. you know, assuming however this plays out and you did get the chance to talk to him and you were trying to kind of figure the whole thing out. What would you say?
1: I love that question. (laughs) Um, (laughs) First of all, I would prepare, 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 because let me tell you something, he's ready for me more than I'm ready for him. I can guarantee you. This is something from the day he first committed any crime, whether it was stalking, peeping Tom, rape, whatever. He has played in his head what he would say, what he would do. Is he going to invoke his right immediately and say, I want a lawyer. He already knows. So he is so prepared. You cannot walk in that room and just see to your pants, go (laughs) wing it. (laughs) Yeah. Rex, bad day for you, bud. Uh, Hey, so
0: you like killing people, huh?
1: (laughs) You like killing people. Yeah. (laughs) So I hear you were in Vegas. I mean, you know, so you can't do that. Yeah. (laughs) That would be the thing. The first thing that I think that I would, um, I would say, I think to anybody, you, you can't walk into his room like a carjack suspect or a burglary suspect, not the same person at all.
0: When you, uh, did you get, uh, when you were doing your research and, uh, you know, like I said, talking with some serial killers, notable ones too, um, mm-hmm. were you kind of scared at any point? I know I asked, um, last no. week I asked Kirk Nurmi because when he was working with Jodi Arias mm-hmm. and, and that was a horrific crime. And I said, are you afraid? He was like, not really. And I just, I I don't know, maybe that's why you're great for law enforcement because you can just kind of easily work with these people where for us, uh, regular people, that just seems like a horrifying situation. Like to sit down with a serial killer and say, okay, you know, why did you, how and why did you kill all those people?
1: I've never been afraid to deal with any person one-on-one like that. And typically when we're dealing with any of these people, if they've just murdered somebody or they've just sexually assaulted somebody, whatever it is, they're in custody. So you gotta figure by the time I am swabbing somebody's cheek, accused of rape, number one, they're typically in handcuffs. Number two, behind me are some pretty significant heroes. So I'm not real worried. I'm like, sir, to protect yourself, please do not take a swing at me, you know what I mean? Because I don't have to do anything. They're going to do it.
0: It's just you funny. Know. you say at least such a badass. You just walk into the room and say, listen, I know you killed a whole bunch of people. I got to swab your cheek. Let's get this over with. Let's go.
1: You know, hey, I got a job to do. You got a job to do. That's and crazy. hopefully I'll do mine better than you did yours.
0: You would hope. Do you, uh, do you have a case that haunts you?
1: I think everybody has some cases that haunt them. Um, but let me tell you the way I operate there's always hope and there's always a chance so even that case that you know pops in my head I'm constantly thinking what did we not think of? What could we maybe go back and do now? And what's going to be invented? Nobody saw Francine Bardot coming. Nobody saw Jared Bradley and the MVAC coming. Nobody saw Othram coming. So I can be patient. There might be something coming that is gonna snag somebody that is gonna blow our mind. Cause think about what they can do now. Oh my god!
0: I, I have seen some amazing stuff where they. Um, I remember the one that stuck out for me was uh, they had a you know a pair of rubber gloves, and they couldn't get the prints off the inside of it. But then they ended oh. up filling the gloves with some sort of gas, and then you know taking a, a strand of DNA and prints and stuff off of that. And again, it looks like it's. Very difficult, very expensive work.
1: There are a whole lot of people out there, a whole lot smarter than me. And again, call them. I have never once in 44 years called somebody that was an expert that I did not know previously that told me no.
0: That's amazing. Again, uh, teamwork makes the dream work is what you're saying.
1: (laughs) But that's who these people are at their core. Like when Delphi happened, the two little girls were murdered off the bridge. Yeah. And then they finally released the part of the video where you can hear him say, down the hill.
0: It is the most terrifying, the image and that audio. I know, I remember I listened to a different podcast where they they, they walked it through a bunch of different ways. And I think that was before uh, they had a suspect. Right. And there's just there's something I know it's only like, what is it? It's a seven or eight second video, but it's one of those ones that just it really sticks with you.
1: Right. So I was not involved in the case. Not anything that I was connected to. But again, I thought, I bet there's something I can do. So I had just a cold call to this guy who was an expert in languages. And accents. He didn't know anything about the case. I didn't tell him anything about the case. And I said, if I send you a clip, will you tell me where you think this person is from? He said, sure. I'll try. He sent me back an email. It wasn't two hours. And he said, rural Indiana.
0: You're kidding.
1: Listen, if I were to say the word heel, i go up. And I have a few more little, you know, (laughs) syllables in there.
0: It couldn't be an easy one, like the guy's from Boston. (laughs)
1: Right. But the way he says it, hell, he goes down with that word. So, again, I immediately reach out to the task force and tell them, you know, this is what the guy had, if it'll help. Well, then I got involved with the case. When I went there... The very first thing I said was, don't anybody tell me where this bridge is. Don't tell me anything. Let me see if I can find it. So I'm driving. I can't find it. Now, my husband will laugh and tell you that's because I have no sense of direction.
0: (laughs) I can't find the bridge. I can't even find north.
1: (laughs) Right? Right. Like my husband always tells like anybody I'm partnered with. If somebody's whooping your ass, don't tell her you're northeast of something. <laughs> <laughs> because you better tell her you're next to the dumpster at Burger King. Yeah. You know, significant. And, and you know, part of that is true. But if you roll into any town and it's a landmark of any kind, you should be able to find it. Well, there's not a lot of signage. Well, then there's this bridge that goes over the road, you know, that says, hey, this is the bridge. But that's not the bridge that's a pedestrian walkway so it's still not the bridge (laughs) so it was just a crazy you know when you find it when you well i had to actually have somebody point to me where the parking lot would be because i would have never found the parking lot because there's two entrances the entrance they went in and they were dropped off and then another entrance where you can go and walk a longer distance because i wanted to see because again the entire crime scene is important I would have never seen the little offshoot because it was gravel and covered in leaves and grass I i just wouldn't have seen it to go up there to park so that experience and then once you get to the bridge and then once you walk down where the creek is then up where their bodies were found i was very confident that person was in five miles this was not a transient this was not somebody that didn't know the area This isn't even somebody that hadn't been on that bridge before.
0: It's too specific.
1: It's too specific and it's too in the middle of nothing. I even did part of my college at Purdue. I had never even heard of Delphi.
0: Nobody ever heard of
1: it. So when you get there, the thing that was so critical to me was it's so off the beaten path and then I took his photograph, the one that they did the freeze frame of. Yeah. If you look at that thing, here's what needs to jump out at you. Both his hands are in his pocket. Now, if you were to walk on that bridge, you would want your hands out, your arms out.
0: It looked rickety, yeah.
1: It's so rickety, dude. And then there's some pie lines missing, so you have to take some good steps. There's no way he would be that comfortable on that bridge if that was the first time he'd ever been on it.
0: See, again, that is that it's no wonder Nancy Grace is riding your coattails because, <laughs> in the couple of cases that you've talked about, it's the little things like that. Again, you know, I've just said I, I watched that video a, a bunch just because it was one of those uh, things that you couldn't take your eyes off of. I never even thought of that, never even occurred to me for a second.
1: Well, it's like I tell you, my mind works like a movie. So if you look at that just that one still frame, it looks like his hips are coming back into the middle of that bridge. Well, to me, that means he's turning around. That makes the most sense to me. It also makes the most sense to me because most women, I doubt you could find a woman in your life that has not had somebody rub up against her, overtly touch her, cost her in some way everybody's had that happen every woman has had that happen
0: yeah men are super creepy we know that right (laughs) that's that's not breaking
1: news (laughs) men men are awesome but there's a few and they make the rounds is all i can tell you yeah but those but those women will tell you they didn't videotape anybody so for a 14 year old girl to pull out her camera And videotape that man. I am telling you, as I am sitting here, he had already done something overtly.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: So I think he passed them, said something or did something gross, creepy, scary. When he turned around is when Libby knew this is bad. Yeah. That's what I think. And I think he got between them and the other exit to make them go in that direction that he wanted them to go. Cause he had a
0: spot picked out already. Yeah. You know, um, we talked about this uh, in the earlier part of the show with, uh, you know, that whole, uh, you know, you're supposed to have five senses, but you have more. And we were like, you have this feeling in your gut. And he it's just, you know what I mean? And it's not, it's not your hair standing up and all that sort of thing. And my, my wife brought up the, uh, a great fact after we watched, it was weird. The, the girl with the dragon tattoo. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, When Daniel Craig knows something is going on and um, Skarsgård invites him in the house and he goes in and then Skarsgård said to him, he goes, you know, something's off about me that I'm going to do something bad. He goes, but yet you came anyways because you didn't want to, you know, offend me. And that's what we were talking about with that extra sense is you just have that little, that little thing, you know, uh, again, you see a lot of true crime, like uh, somebody will go to the, uh, you know, the convenience store and there'll be some guy in a pickup truck and say, you know, come here for a second or. It's just that, and then you will have that little bit of thing saying, "You know what? Something here is just the tiniest bit off," and that's when we kept saying, "Goes call nine one one, run, go find an adult, find this, find a well lit area, find a phone or another person. Safety yeah. in numbers." It's like, as soon as you get that little that little chang in your in your soul, just bail, go
1: bail. And here's the thing: I preach even to my own children. If you were to go to a pound. And there's a hundred dogs. Why that dog? Why did you go to that dog? Cause your gut told you, it yeah. was something. Your wife, how did you know she was the one you knew? And people say, well, I just knew. No, you instinctively, you knew. you yeah. knew you could trust her differently than other people. You were attracted to her in a different way than other people. I mean, it's fine. One night stands great. You know, three months <laughs> here. Great but something about her. Why could you get naked with her 20 years? Yeah. There's something different about her. Your gut is not always negative. It's not always, Oh, this person's going to hack me up. It's for that too. But your gut is a positive thing. That dog, your wife, you just know that house you picked it. You know, there's something about it that's for you. That's the same thing here. And, and, women especially southern and i say this a lot we don't want to be rude we want to be friendly so when somebody says oh can you give me directions why would a man ask a woman for directions
0: because they're creepy i told (laughs) you
1: (laughs) they know we don't know right and i'm I'm not i'm being silly of course because we were already joking about me not uh, you know, having good. I would especially tracks. use
0: some guy to pick up truck. Goes, excuse me, Mac. Can you tell me where North yeah.
1: is? <laughs> Why don't you hop in and show me? You know, and, and the thing is, men get really any predator, any predator, they get better. And let let's take Rex for example. I have heard so many people say what an unbelievable hunter he must be. He's a hunter predator. What? He called them on the phone, and they came to him. Yeah. There wasn't no hunting. He wasn't driving around like Bundy looking for an opportunity. He made the opportunity.
0: Yeah.
1: He's the laziest serial killer I've ever heard. Of. <laughs> but he's good. He's he was good. If it's him, he's been good for thirty years or more.
0: Not only are you a serial killer, but you're also lazy.
1: <laughs> I call it like I say it, sir.
0: Oh man. Well that's you know, I, mean, I know
1: ain't
0: that vision a barrel? Yeah. I mean, it, again, I, I can't wait to see there. I, we always talk with, uh, you know, our true crime community people about, uh, the cases that you're looking forward to coming up. Just, you know, it, it's a morbid curiosity, but sure. like we were just saying with the feeling in your gut, and I I've always said this, especially on the show and stuff there, everything you watch that's true crime related, there's a lesson. <laughs> and like we were just saying, it's the weirdo in the pickup truck. It's, you know, children out, you know, walking through a valley by themselves. It's just yeah. every single time. I mean, outside of like a mass shooting, which there's not much you can do about that. A lot of these crimes, there, there is a, a moment where you think, you know what? I shouldn't have went down there. I shouldn't have argued with them. I should have listened to my kids more. I should have done this. You know, there is there is, there is a lesson to be learned across the board. In this.
1: Well, let's talk about that. Have you heard some of the women that are coming out talking about they wouldn't fool with him? They just got a feeling about them? Yeah. Okay. I apologize. You are talking about women that have men primarily come to them to do things with them that those men would not ask their wives or girlfriends to do. Yeah. So you're already talking about a dude on a different level. And she deals with them all the time with no issue. Now... You're telling me that same woman who deals with perverts all the time said, I'm not getting in that guy's car.
0: Like, again, our our sixth sense, but that's like, you're right. You know, if you've been a a sex worker for 10 or 15 years and this is the one that you turned down,
1: (laughs) that tells you what game he was running and he could not hide who he was.
0: No. Uh, you know, we're coming up on an hour. There's so much more stuff I want to talk to you about, mm-hmm. but uh, they're always, uh, everyone's always pissing and moaning at me that uh, we I talk too long. But there was one last thing I wanted to talk about with uh, all this new stuff coming up with the Tupac, um, uh, the Tupac investigation. Did you actually worked with his mother on the timeline of that whole situation.
1: Yes. So through the Cold Case Investigative Research Institute, the students and I worked. Oh gosh, it was. Probably over a year, just developing that timeline for her to put some pieces together that maybe she had not previously known or wasn't clear to her in what order things happened and that sort of thing. Uh, extraordinary person. Um, she was, of course, broken over it, desperately sad over it, um, but went on into Cab County and and opened you know, a sinner in his name, which was pretty extraordinary.
0: Yeah, that's amazing. So wh- mm-hmm. why is a, I know, I know there's a lot of um, controversy over the Brian Koberger uh, timeline. It, it's a timeline kind of not <laughs> counterproductive, but it can also, you know, it can work against you if you're working a case and, you, and then, you know, you get that. and It turns out that, you know, the evidence that you want isn't there.
1: That's why you do a timeline, because you want the truth. You know that old game you had when you were little the round peg goes in the round hole and the star yeah. goes in the star that's that's how we do it if it's not there it's not there and that alleviates you from getting tunnel vision it alleviates you from making mistakes you don't want to arrest the wrong person i mean
0: but but like a, <laughs> my, my point was like you're 99 percent sure this person's the one and then the timeline just doesn't you know line up and then you're like, Oh God damn.
1: but again, why doesn't it line up? Either you've missed something or it's not your guy. Mm-hmm. So you've got to go back. That's what I'm telling you. The timeline is going to line up. It, it's what you always start with. It, it has to make sense. So for me, it is as important what is on that timeline and what I can show as what's not. So for example, if you have somebody say, I went to dinner at 7 o'clock. I was home by 10. Did you eat dinner for three hours? Maybe, <laughs> maybe. I have been in restaurants. I just had dinner with Elena Burrows. Do you know Elena from uh, Crime Scene Confidential?
0: No, and I'm not familiar.
1: Okay, she is extraordinary, and I need to make sure you know her. She's fantastic. She was the CSI on the uh, uh, Casey Anthony case. Oh, okay. So, We were having such an unbelievably fantastic conversation. I did not even realize they were closing the restaurant down. So yes, you can be there for three hours, but it's got to make sense to me. So I want to go talk to that waiter. I want to talk to the bartender. Oh yeah, they closed the place down. Okay, cool. But if you went there and got food to go, and that's what I find out and you only live 15 minutes from there.
0: There's two and a half hours missing.
1: What's happening? Yeah, that's a void of time that I now have a real issue with.
0: Oh, I don't want to wrap this up, but I'm sad that we have to. But uh, I still had a bunch of other stuff I wanted to talk to you about. So maybe <laughs> we can uh, do a part two in a few weeks. But oh, uh, part
1: two would be great. And I, <laughs> I just appreciate you wanting to talk to me at all. I mean, no, it's you're incredible.
0: You're absolutely incredible. I'm blown away. Everyone's going to be blown away. This is fantastic. Her name is Cheryl Mac McCollum. Hurry, she, she has a podcast. Zone one forty seven. Look for it everywhere. It's dynamite. Your podcast is so good.
1: Just, just zone seven.
0: Sorry, zone seven. I don't know why I had my I, I because had very terrible handwriting.
1: <laughs> no, no, no. You're right. <clears throat> my my tag or whatever. Zone Twitter seven. handle. <laughs> yeah, my zone seven was taken for some reason, so oh. I put one forty nine zone seven. One forty nine is my badge number.
0: Oh, okay.
1: So it, the podcast is just zone seven, though.
0: All right. Well, I'll put up a link when I post this one. But I'm telling you, if you enjoyed this, you can have her without my voice. Way better. (laughs) Mac, honestly, thank you so much. This was incredible. And I'm dying to have you back already. Anytime. Thank you, sugar. All right. You have a good day. You too. Bye-bye.